Can you imagine your... I, now, I know in Revelation there's some, some things that are strange. They're weird. They're hard to understand. But I, I don't mean that part so much, though that's important too. I'm talking about maybe chapter 1 and the vision that we receive of the resurrected Christ, the risen Lord, the risen King. Or how about the first couple chapters, the letters that are written to the various churches. We did a series a couple years ago, I think, on in chapters 2 and 3. Imagine missing out on the vision of heaven and the worshipers that are gathered before the throne of God from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Imagine not having that picture. Or imagine not having the comfort that every tear shall be wiped from our eyes. That there is a home that we are awaiting where there is no more pain, there is no more death. Every tear is wiped from our eyes. Imagine not having that. Where did the book of Revelation come from? It came from a place of exile. John received his revelation when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Not kind of island that you think of for island hunters. Uh, maybe a TV show you've maybe seen. Nothing like that. It's not the kindest place. And it was exile away from his beloved people, his church that he served. It was away from people who knew him. And imagine the questions and fears the Apostle John might have had in that place. Will I ever see those people that I love again? Will I ever get back home to the place that I belong? Exile is not an easy place. And yet from that place, John was prepared to go deeper with his Lord and therefore to be a conduit of blessing to the church for millennia. Imagine your Bibles without revelation. It's difficult to imagine. And John knew that there is, and he writes, and he has in this, that vision, a, a picture of a true and better home that awaits us. Exile is not something we choose, but something we experience. And that's a, going to be a theme through the book of 1 Peter it might be more metaphorical than literal for us. But we will feel pressure at times when following Christ becomes strange in our culture. We will be tempted to forget who we are at times. And we will stumble on the difficult path of suffering. But what will keep us from either despair or departing the faith? And here's my theme this morning. It's there on page 6 in the bulletin. Our standing in Christ outweighs, outweighs our suffering because of Him. Or our suffer, standing in Christ outweighs our suffering for His sake. Maybe is a better way to put it. Our standing there matters more. So I want to talk about the original, the rock. And trembling rocks and the higher rock. Now we know... That names are powerful. If you're familiar with the Harry Potter series, you know Voldemort is the one who cannot be named. Right? You can't say his name. He's too much of a villain. He's too evil. Maybe you're familiar with that. 
names identify us, or when it comes time to maybe name a child, you have this experience of, what do you think about this name? No, I hate that guy. Whoa, I wasn't talking about that guy at all. Right? You, you, you begin to realize that how important names are, and we begin to associate names and actions. Because names aren't blank slates. And Peter certainly isn't a blank slate. We saw that last week as we had sort of an introductory sermon looking at his restoration by Jesus from the Gospel of John. And here's the thing. Peter is not the name that his parents gave him. That's not what you would see on his birth certificate if you were to pull that up. That name is from Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's a nickname of sorts. Not like uh, the kind of name you give someone, ironically, a big tall guy that you call Tiny. Or maybe a name someone has red hair and you call him Red. Nothing like that, but it is a, a nickname of sorts. So with apologies to Dwayne The Rock Johnson, this name belongs to Peter. He is to be called Stone, Cephas, or Rock, Petros, Peter. And that's affirmed in Matthew 16 when he makes his confession of who Jesus is. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That confession that Peter has of who Christ is changes the course of history. When we confess that, our lives are changed and our culture and our world is changed. And that confession becomes the foundation of the church. And it doesn't just belong to Peter, it belongs to the apostles and those who claim the name of Jesus. And that's the rock on which we stand, the foundation of the church and Peter calls himself in this first verse an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not Peter the denier, not Peter the failure. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means someone who, uh, the word apostle means someone who sent or a messenger on behalf of someone else. In this case of Jesus Christ, uh, an envoy, an ambassador. And so that's what Peter says. That's who he is. It's who he's become, not by his own doing, not by his intelligence, not by his industry. It is all of Jesus. And Peter was there when Jesus told the remaining, all of the disciples except for Judas, when he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And then right after that, Jesus is ascended to heaven. Peter's a part of that. He's bearing witness to Jesus in this letter. 
He's being a witness to who Christ is. Jesus changed his name, but more importantly, changed the world. And this opening follows letter uh, writing conventions of this time. We see it in the letters from Paul, and we'll see it here. And so he identifies who he is. Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's the author. And then all these letters identify who they're writing to. And so let's see who he is writing to, and we'll get more of a sense of the theme of this letter, of this book. And this leads us to troubling rocks. And I was reminded of, it's getting to be fall. We're almost there, right? You can feel it in the air, can't you? I love fall because I like to get out in the woods and hike. Uh, That's one of the things I try to do on my day off if the weather's good. And so uh, not quite a year ago, it's been a little bit less than that. But last fall, I hiked on Montesano. I was on the Land Trust side. And so I was uh, hiking along Bluffline Trail. And then I picked up High Trail, which goes higher up the mountain. And it was a wonderful hike. I'd been out there for a couple of hours at that point. And I'm coming back to my car down Tollgate Trail. And all of a sudden, every step becomes painful. Every step becomes difficult for a couple reasons. The peripheral neuropathy that I have from chemotherapy is a factor, certainly. And I've been on my feet for a couple hours at this point. But more, uh, it, it, more importantly, the, the part that was bothering me was that on Tollgate Trail are just hundreds, thousands of rocks. Little ones and big ones, but not even the big ones that you can walk nicely on. It's like every little step was on a boulder this size. You could step on it, but you had to be careful. And then you'd make, take another step, and it was the same thing. And every step became more and more painful. The path was hard, and the pain was real. But even though I was beginning to wonder, should I have not taken that trail? And maybe I would have been better off just walking along Bankhead High, uh, Parkway. That would have been better. Maybe not as safe, but better. I would have missed out on the beauty of what I experienced if I had tried to avoid the pain altogether. And there's a hint at the beginning of this letter that there is pain and trouble and difficulty ahead for who Peter is writing to. There will be troubling rocks on their path. In fact, in this letter, Peter uses the word suffering 16 times. That's 16 times out of the 94 that are contained in Scripture. So if you want to know a theme, one of the themes of Scripture is suffering in 1 Peter. And it's not just that word. There are other words that he uses to identify the challenges that we face as followers of Christ in this world. So he's writing to these churches, to these people, to those who are elect exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you have a Bible map in the back of your Bible You might be able to locate these places, but basically it's modern-day Turkey, and it's the northern portion, actually the middle to the north. Most of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, is covered in these areas, If unless these are specific cities, in case Galatia would be, but Galatia is a region as well. These are more likely regions, and it's covering a large area. 
over 129,000 square miles. And one commentator says the outstanding feature of the geographical destination of First Peter is the enormity, enormous diversity of the land, peoples, and cultures. And so that's who Peter's writing to. He's likely writing in the 60s from Rome. And Rome is where he, is, he would be martyred, killed. Uh, but in t- uh, before that, he writes this letter. And what does it mean to be an exile? That language of elect exiles, Peter is picking up from the Old Testament. And we'll see First Peter's chock full of Old Testament uh, allusions and, and quotations and pictures. And this is just another one of them. Israel had been exiled, hadn't they? In Babylon. That wasn't easy, but it also was a time of clarification. It was a time of clinging to the promises of God that he has made to his people. And for these believers, who may not have been literally exiled, but they're no longer at home in their own communities. Why? Because they're following Jesus. Or like Jews scattered and dispersed away from their homeland. The church is a new dispersion. And commentators like to debate who Peter's writing to. Is he writing to Jewish converts or Gentile converts? I think it's probably a combination of the two because we see bits and pieces that point us in that direction. But all of those who belong to Christ are heirs of the covenants of the Lord. And they are new people of God through Christ. And they receive the heritage of Israel. R. Scott Clark says, These young Christians were undergoing a culture shock in their own towns and provinces. They were struggling to understand the fact that being united to Christ makes a stranger from, as Paul puts it, this age. Because they belonged to Christ, they were unjustly accused. We'll see that in chapter 2. They suffered unjustly, also chapter 2. They endured daily insults and petty humiliations for the sake of the gospel, chapter 3 and 4. At some points, their conflict with the prevailing culture became so intense that the Apostle describes these informal persecutions as fiery trials. Chapter 4. Surely, committed Christian people still suffer in ways very much like this. He goes on to give some examples. There could be zoning laws that are against followers of Christ, not allowed to meet in certain locations, or an individual worker being fired because of their integrity. Or being mocked because of what we do in this world. We heard it in our words of confession in chapter 2. Paul calls these people sojourners and exiles. It's a reminder that this world is not our home. When we feel at odds with this world or when we are made to feel strange, it is good to remember that this is exactly what Jesus said would be true of us. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. If the world hated you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the reality. This is what Peter is preparing these people for. That does not mean we cannot experience joy and beauty. There are many good things. 
But scripture prepares us to expect and be prepared for rocky paths that will be ahead when we are committed to following Jesus in this world. We will be aliens and strangers. I feel that no more, this is me personally, when it comes time to vote for somebody in an election. I say, you know, I don't know about this guy and I don't know about this gal. I feel like nothing seems right. And we will be told that we're on the wrong side of history. And we may experience a sense of exile from people we know in our workplaces and in our community. But Peter's preparing us and preparing these followers of Christ for a life of faith, growth and obedience and perseverance through those trials that we should not be surprised by. And so while there will be times when the ground seems to change beneath us, when the path gets difficult, where do you turn? Where can we have confidence to stand? Well, there is a rock that is higher than we are. It is a place of refuge and strength. And that's my last point, the higher rock. And there are times when I felt like an exile from my beloved Georgia and Georgia Bulldogs. When we moved to St. Louis, they loved the Cardinals and the Blues and the Rams when they were there. They didn't care about college football, so I felt like a stranger there. We moved to Norfolk then, and nobody cares about college football there. Everybody's from somewhere else, and there's no kind of culture around it. And then when I came to the Presbytery meeting to transfer into our Presbytery so I could be the pastor here uh, 15 years ago, I was telling, we have, you have to tell your story, your testimony, your background, your call to ministry. And I was saying about my growing up in Atlanta and our going to the University of Georgia, and then I just gave a little go dogs. And let me tell you, the temperature in that room dropped by about 10 degrees. Like I thought, okay, maybe the Lord isn't calling me. <laughs> this may be a no. And then within the first week that we had moved here, we had someone yelling at us in the, not yelling, but they were kind of talking to us with great passion in the parking lot of the Publix about, you know, Alabama and Auburn and Tennessee. And I was like, hey, we're home. But not completely. Because there's been times where you feel like an exile. But you know what helps? You know what helps? Winning helps. I did. I've been waiting to work this into a sermon. Winning back-to-back national champions helps tremendously. You know, you stand a little taller. You wear your colors a little bit bolder. You feel a little bit stronger. What makes the difference? And forgive the poor illustration, but what makes the difference for the suffering Christian, for the persecuted Christian, for the Christian who's just simply longing for the home of heaven? It is... Indeed, victory. Our victory through Jesus Christ. His victory on our behalf over sin and the world and the evil one. And what we see in verse 2 is that there is a Trinitarian rescue effort that has been on our behalf. It's why we sing to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's why we praise the Trinity. It's why we believe in it. Because we see it here in Scripture. Look at verse 2. 
to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. That is the higher rock that we stand on. That's the solid ground that Jesus has come on our behalf, that the Spirit is working within us. The Father knows you and chose you. That's the higher ground, the more sure footing of the gospel. We are chosen. That's what it means to be elect. We can focus on the exile part, and that's true. But there's also the reality that we're chosen by God. Elect exiles. Why? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter is saying that God chose you. You heard it when Jesus said, I chose you, Jesus says. You didn't choose me, I choose you. And that should humble us tremendously, but also embolden us to continue to follow the Lord in obedience no matter what. And he says it's according to his foreknowledge. And this just does, does not mean God's omniscient, though he is omniscient, knowing everything. It's not about God looking into the future and saying, oh, there's a good preacher. There's a good follower of Christ. I'll take him or her. No, it's his covenant love being given to us in eternity past. It's his foreknowledge of us then. God, it's about God knowing us as his people and making a covenant to be our God. And that gets emphasized in the relationship of having a father in heaven. Notice that. According to the foreknowledge of God, who? God the Father. It emphasizes that personal dimension. And it's not just because of who you are or were. It's not because of that at all. But rather the adopting love of God the Father. Who freely loves us and chooses us for his own glory. Juan Sanchez says, we can stand firm in the grace of God because the God who chooses us is the God who brings about the very salvation he offers. If before the creation of the world God chose you, and if he sent his son to die for you, he is hardly going to let you go now. And not only that, we're sanctified by the Spirit The Spirit's involved in what is happening in and through us. And that matters much more than what is happening to you. Who you are is more important. And who you are becoming is more important than what is happening to you. We have to fight to remember that, especially when we experience trials and sufferings. But God never leaves us as we are. He's leading us to our original design. And the Spirit leads us to a greater holiness, which is precisely why we will feel like exiles or even be exiled. And why? Why else? Because God chose us. and He's our Father. Because the Spirit is sanctifying us. Finally, so we've got Father and Spirit. There's Jesus. The work of Jesus to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit 
for the obe- for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. There's two ways to understand the obedience here, obedience to Jesus Christ. That may refer to obedience to the gospel. That is, that when the good news is proclaimed, that we believe that Jesus is our Savior, that he's the only Redeemer of God's elect. So obedience to the gospel, or it could refer to obedience to the way of Jesus. And that certainly makes sense. But I lean towards obedience to the good news of the gospel because our holiness has already been covered. Our sanctification is already covering our obedience to the way of Jesus. That's what the Spirit is leading us in. But it doesn't much matter because it's still this reality that we are being led in this way. And Peter finishes this summation of our salvation by the work of the Trinity by pointing us to the pinnacle of that work, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood is what cleanses us from every sin. This is a picture of the new covenant ratified by the blood of Christ, signified in the wine and grape juice that we receive in communion or by the water of baptism. We're sprinkled by the blood of Christ, cleansed and raised to new life. It declares who we are, forgiven, redeemed, ransomed. And maybe more importantly, it proclaims whose we are. We belong to the Father whose children we become. We belong to the Spirit who leads us onward. We belong to our older brother Jesus who dies that we might live. Do you think that might make a difference to these people? When they're struggling, when they're suffering, when they're experiencing exile. Does it make a difference to you? Well, I believe that you can handle all sorts of exiles, little and big, small and large, when you know the distance between you and God has been closed because of his goodness to you. If you know that you are no longer an exile from the Lord who created you, then it might make a difference in how we endure. Because there's a hope and a promise of something eternal and better before us. There is victory in Christ and a higher rock that we stand on. I'm not trying to diminish diminish the difficulties along the way. But we are encouraged to follow Christ including in seeking what is good for our neighbors and pointing our community to the rock of our salvation. You know one of the best means and methods of evangelism that you have right now? Don't go crazy when the world around you is going crazy. I know there are outrageous things. I know there are befuddling things. I know that sometimes we don't feel like the government is a good government. Right Or any number of other ways that you could say the world has gone mad or continues in its madness. But if you can maintain your sanity because you know that Jesus has something better for you. You know that you have a Father in Heaven who loves you. You know you have the Spirit indwelling within you. Then other people might begin to wonder, what's different about you. Why 
Do you have this peace? And where do I find some of that? That's not some kind of Zen state nor apathy. I'm not saying that. And, you know, vote if you feel like you can. Or do all those things that you're engaged in. I'm not saying that we depart from those things, but we approach them quite differently. Because we know where we can plant our feet. We know our help is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. We stand. Peter concludes, and I'll conclude with this, this opening with the words similar to how Paul often began his letters. Peter has his own spin. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And at the end of this letter, he writes, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, this is chapter 5, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's what we're doing. We're standing in and on and by the grace of God. And that is what we should want to be multiplied among us. And when God's grace is multiplied, His peace is multiplied. His shalom comes to our church, to our homes, to our community. Yes, we may want better circumstances and less suffering. I'm not calling us to be a spiritual masochist here. But belonging is not about feeling more at home about where we are, but looking to the home and the world to come and living in light of that. So that grace and peace might be multiplied because Jesus' work becomes more precious. The Spirit's leading becomes more tangible. And our joy in the Father abounds in our hearts and our lives. That's my desire. And that's what I hope we'll learn from this book as we go through it. And many other things beside. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that... Uh, we would dig into your word. We would jump into First Peter. Uh, we would mine the depths. And we would ha- see uh, what you've given to us. What encouragement there is. What leading you have. And how you're continuing to show us the work that you've already done. And the work that will be completed in our lives through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Jacob's going to come and lead us in communion now.